just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, and we ask that you just help us to see what you would have us see through this uh, last couple of verses in Daniel as we get ready to finish this off, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood another two, the one on this side of the river bank and the other on the side of the bank of the river, and one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, that which was upon the water of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lived forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from that time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination shall make, that maketh desolate set up. There shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waits for the coming of the thousand three hundred and thirty-five days. But you go you your way till the end, for you shall rest and stand in your lot at the end of the days. All right. So here we are looking at the last couple verses of the book of Daniel. And Daniel says in verse 9, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, one on this side of the bank of the river and the other on the other side of the bank of the river. So he's been talking to an angel, and all of a sudden now there are two angels present. There's, I've been, during my study, I, I had somebody point out something that is kind of interesting. Uh, most people, he's been, he was talking to Michael at the very beginning of the chapter, so this is either Michael or it is an appearance of Jesus talking to him. And it might very well be Jesus talking to him uh, on a Christophany or a pre-appearance uh, of Jesus before he was actually born of a virgin. And we've talked about these many times. Uh, that Jesus would have been the one that came and talked to Adam and Eve in the garden. He would have been the one that talked with Abraham uh, after they, when they were telling him that Sodom and Gomorrah was being destroyed. And we know it wasn't an angel because Adam, uh, Abraham offered a sacrifice and, and worship and, he, and the individual took, uh, took the worship and it says that he ascended on the smoke, which tells us that it was Jesus and not an angel because every time they bow down before an angel in the scripture, the angels will say, stand up, I am a servant also, do not... Do not worship me. If we see a place where worship is being accepted by the, what they say, the angel of the Lord, then we know it's a picture of Jesus. Jesus would have been the fourth man in the fire with, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was a physical appearance of God in, in the flames. Uh, so we see it many times. So there are people who believe that this particular person that he's standing in front of after the vision is Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to take a strong stance on that, but, but he says, two showed up. And in Deuteronomy 19.15, this is where God addresses witnesses for accusations that there have to be two witnesses for anything to be held up in, in a basically court or, or covenant. There had to be two witnesses to it. And so... There are those who believe that the second two angels came down because here's a covenant with, that Daniel is being said. You have seen the, the, you know, you've seen this and it is being fulfilled. And because he was making a promise, he sent two witnesses to the promise. And it's not too far-fetched to think that. Uh, in Deuteronomy uh, 30, verse 19 and 31, 18, Moses kept calling for heaven and earth to bear witness to things that, he was being, that were being said. Moses. And here we have the same thing. Daniel from the earth and the two angels from heaven. So again, we have this idea of we're making an agreement. I'm showing you anything. It's absolutely true. And I'm swearing that it's absolutely true. And here's our witnesses. Daniel, you're my earthly witness. Angels, you're my heavenly witness. 
And so we just bring that out. It's not a big deal, but we see them standing on, the, on either side of the river, and the one man is standing on the water, which is kind of an interesting place to be because we only know two other people that have ever been spoken of as having stood on water, and that would be Jesus and, of course, Peter, who said, if, you're really, if you really are the Lord, call, me, call to me and ask me to come out. And God said, come, and Jesus said, come, and he walked on the water until he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the storm and he started sinking. And this, this lots of lessons in there that we're not going to go to. <laughs> but we have this person standing on the water. And the question that the one angel says to him is, how long till the end? Daniel's been seeing the end. And we remember over the last couple of chapters, we've been talking about very clear, distinct picture of the battles that were going to rage over back and forth across Israel and then Antioch is coming in, and then we saw the, the, the Antichrist for the end days. All right, so Daniel, Daniel covers thousands of years, you know, 25, 33,000 years, you know, uh, period in those three chapters. And the angel says, how long will it be? And it says, you hear, I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the water, and he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lives forever that it shall be a time, times, and a half. And this is a term we saw in Revelation when we studied it. And, and basically, it's been interpreted to mean three and a half years. All right? And that comes from other places here we're getting ready to go into. And in Revelation, it does the same thing when it says it'll be uh, 1,200 and I think it's 85 years, which is three and a half years. And so here we see, and, and even Revelation uses this at the same time, time, one year, times, two years and a half. So three and a half years is what he's saying. So he is very clearly talking at this point about the second half of the tribulation that, that will happen when, this, when these things will happen. The desolation of abomination will happen. And again, we talked about Antiochus going into this. And if you remember, if you weren't, if you weren't here, Antiochus was the king of the northern, northern kingdom of, that broke out into Greece. And he came down and attacked Ptolemy in Egypt, was repelled by Rome, and went back to uh, Jerusalem for a period of three and a half to four years. So this could also be referring to him. And some people do believe it's Antiochus. And I'm just going to throw that out. It could be Antiochus. I believe it's talking about the end days. But it could be Antiochus. And we see this three-and-a-half-year period. Antiochus went into Jerusalem. And remember we, how we talked about this. He went into Jerusalem. He stopped their daily sacrifices. He put up an idol for Zeus and tried to make the Jewish people worship Zeus. And he did many other things. Uh, for the Jew... Uh, nudity was a severe, was a, was a thing that you didn't do because of the modesty of the scriptures and everything. And so he brought in the Greek mentality and, and had people running around naked to offend the, the, the Israelites. He did all kinds of things to really cause problems for them. Um, but it seems to be more than three and a half years. So this is one of the reasons I don't believe that it's Antiochus, even though some people have tried to force him in to this vision. And then it says, and when they have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And if you remember from our Revelation study, at the, somewhere right at about the midpoint of the seven years of tribulation, the Antichrist will rise up and demand to be worshipped. He will actually step into the temple and declare that he is God. And that will be the point that the Jews will realize that they have been deceived and they will come to recognize that this is not the Messiah that's, even though he's helped them get peace in their land and build a temple and start sacrifices they will realize that this is not the Messiah because the Messiah is not going to stand in the temple and demand sacrifice the way he does and so there will be this rebellion and this is where Jesus said you know pray that in in that day that it's not on the Sabbath or that it's not in winter or that, that you don't have a, a woman that's pregnant or, giving, or, or breastfeeding. 
because they will be running from the city because they'll realize that they've been tricked and they'll be trying to get out of that, out of that place. And here's what he's saying, they'll be scattered. They will be scattered completely and then Satan will really go after them. <laughs> okay. He's gone after them many times in their history, but this will be another time that he's going to go after the Jewish population. And he'll be doing it with a vengeance, trying to kill as many, if not all of them, that he can. Because he is trying to, again, we've gone over this. His whole purpose is, when he goes against the Jews, is to try to destroy prophecy. Before Jesus was born, his whole purpose was to try to destroy them so that Jesus wouldn't be born. All right? Because the promise that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's seed was Jesus that all people would be given a chance to have salvation. So Satan has actively been trying over the generations to destroy the Jewish population. And that's through the many wars that have been going on, uh, when Assyria took them and brutalized it, the northern kingdom, and when uh, Nebuchadnezzar took the southern kingdom and treated them bad, there was all of this stuff trying to go on. The Medo-Persians took over, and we all know the story of Esther really, you know, probably real well where uh, Haman tried to destroy the Jews and Esther was the one that delivered them, you know, was able to bring deliverance to them from an earthly side of things. Uh, all the way through time, we see this going on and on. Egypt tried to get rid of them by killing off the babies before Moses, you know, and that's where Moses came in. And uh, we see it at, even when Jesus was born and the wise men came and Herod and said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And Herod got into a panic and said, well, where, is he, where was he born in? And then killed all the infants in Bethlehem. Uh, and God had called, called Mary and, and Joseph and said, take the infant to Egypt. And thus fulfilling more verses of the scripture. Once Jesus was born and died and was resurrected, we've seen many times when the Jews have tried to been, where the world has tried to annihilate the Jewish people. Uh, with one of the most recent ones being Hitler. Hitler killing millions of Jews, trying to exterminate them. And he wasn't the only one in, in, all, that, in all of that European history trying to destroy Jews. Okay, you follow the Jewish history, and they have been attacked and persecuted and, and tried to be annihilated. And why? Because Satan knows that if he can annihilate every Jew, then there won't be any Jews to come back to, the, to Israel. And if he can get rid of all the Jews from Israel, they won't be able to build a temple to to, to worship in, and if he can do that, then, then all of the revelation gets ended and, God and he proves that God is not all-powerful and all-knowing. Okay, and that's his whole point. That's his point of trying to destroy the Jewish people so he can say, well, God, you were wrong, and it won't happen. God will protect his people. The Jews are already back in the land, so what are we, trying, what are we seeing in our world? They're trying to reduce their borders to nothing so that they can be annihilated, and that's the whole purpose. Not, not that that's the reason why they're doing it, but that's Satan's purpose behind moving them to, to reduce these borders so that maybe he can get them totally annihilated because if he can crush them into a smaller, smaller area, then it's easier to destroy. Then God will not let that happen, but that's his process is to try to destroy this because if he can get rid of them, all of the rest of Revelation and the prophecies can't occur. And God's not going to let it happen. They're his people. He's going to keep them protected in spite of all of Satan's onslaught. And this is something we want to keep in mind. And I'm not saying that people are against Israel or listening directly to Satan, but he is the one manipulating and moving the pieces and, and putting the thoughts in their minds on how to do things. And he's the one behind the forces trying to go in and kill them all the time. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that he's speaking right in their ears and they're, and they're worshiping him. They're just... He's planning the thoughts in their mind and stirring it up. And this is why there will be peace when he stands up to be the, and show himself as the Antichrist. Because at that time, he's trying to fulfill the rest of the rest of the story, and he has no reason to stir up the enemies and can stop the enemies from coming forth for a period of time because he's going to try to get them to love him enough so that they will worship him and turn from God. All right? All of this... Everything in the Bible is the battle, is about the battle between Satan and God. And, you know, it's kind of amazing because God could just unthink Satan for a moment and Satan would not exist. 
And yet he uses Satan to test his people, to try his people. And we see it in our lives. And we've talked many times about this. When bad things happen to us, it's God trying to teach us something or show us something or grow us out of something. He, these things, and this is something we've got to get understood. Most of us, and I myself included, when something bad happens to us, we think, oh my, what is, you know, this is so bad, this is so terrible, this is, you know, awful. But you know, God is teaching us something, and we need to keep that in mind. He's teaching us to do something. He may be saying, you've sinned and I'm punishing you. It could be, I want you to grow in this area so that you won't do it in the future. He may be saying, I want to test you. You've been learning about this area, and I'm going to test to see, are you, are you learning it? You know, I used to love when teachers would come in, and they're going, I don't give tests. I give opportunity to show what you've learned. <laughs> you know, now, as a student, I really didn't appreciate it. But now that I'm out, outside of the classroom environment, I really do understand that what they were showing us. Yes, you're not, you don't know what you know until it is tested in some way. And you may think you know something, you may think you know how to forgive somebody. You may think you know how to love somebody. You may think you know how to be patient. But you really don't know if you know those things until God puts you into a position where you have to forgive somebody that's very hard to forgive. But these, all, these tests always come our way, and most of them are designed to teach us something or to see if we have actually learned. And this is so important because... And this is what I keep telling us over and over. When we start learning something from a message or from your own reading of the Bible or where God touches your mind with something, expect the test in that area. Because we need to know, do I know how to love somebody? I say I love, that I love people. God tells me to love people. And I go, okay, God, I believe it. I, I love, I, I'm going to love people better. And immediately you're going to find somebody that's very hard to love in your life. I would say everything bad that happens to us, unless we know there's a sin that we're being judged for, is a test to see what we believe. And when you start really thinking about it in that terms, then when you start having things that we would normally have called bad, we start looking at it totally different. This is a test and I can pass this if I turn to God and I trust in God. And when you start thinking of it as a test, it starts to become a different mentality because when I think it's just bad things happening to me, I'm going to react much differently to that than if I understand that it's a test. And here, we want to look at this. This angel is saying there's going to be three and a half years and the people are going to be scattered. Think about this. Daniel was realizing that his people who were in captivity were getting ready to go back to Israel and already he's seeing that they're going to fail and be scattered again. Can you think about how that makes Daniel feel? God, we're ready to go back home, and God's saying, you're going to be scattered again. Now, he didn't tell them how long it would be, and it's going to be a long time before they're scattered again, you know, well over, well over 400 years. But Daniel is looking at this, and he's saying, all right, God, it's time to go home. We're, we're ready to go. The people are going to be ready to go home, and God's saying, oh, by the way, they're going to be scattered again. It's probably depressing to Daniel, if nothing else, because God doesn't tell him how long it's going to be. Okay, he's not telling them that this is going to be, you know, to be, to be re-scattered, you know, they're going to go back to Israel around 450, 500 A.D. They're going to be re-scattered, uh, B.C., excuse me. They're going to be re-scattered at 70 A.D. Then they're going to be brought back together, which we know is 1948. And sometime in the near future, I believe, they're going to be re-scattered at, at the end of the tribulation, you know, last half of the tribulation period. So they're going to be scattered once again. You know, the poor Israelites keep getting sent out of their town, out of their country, you know, over and over again, mostly because of their disobedience toward God and God's judgment. But here's Daniel saying, we're getting ready to go home. And God's saying, oh, and by the way, your people are going to be scattered again. At the end, they're going to be scattered again. You know, you just think about how this must have made Daniel feel uh, that this was going to happen. And then it said, and, and these things shall be finished or complete. So this is why I believe that we're talking about the second half of the tribulation period because at that point their trials are pretty much complete. Because remember at the end of the, the end of the tribulation period Jesus comes back, touches down on Mount Olive, a Mount Olive splits in half, a water rushes back in, purifies the Dead Sea, 
And Jesus rules the world from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And everybody gets to have, everybody who's live will, says that if they live to be only a hundred, they'll be, con be considered an infant. Because we'll be back to the way it was supposed to be. People will have longevity. They will have long lives. They will have that perfect life. And remember, we've shared with you before that the whole purpose of this thousand years is to prove that ma what man says, that if they just lived in utopia, people would be good. Well, it's, a, it's going to be a proving that at the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released and many will join on his side that have been living in utopia for a thousand years. Oh, so you mean they're going to they're probably live more like Adam and Eve oh, yeah. most of the thousand years if or all of the thousand years things will be purified thing and God will rule with an iron scepter there will be peace there will be no war there will be no battles there it, everything will be the way it was supposed to have been other than some people can die because there will still be the sin nature and people will still want to sin which is why he rules with the iron scepter. He will not let people sin during that thousand years, which is why many will rebel because they've been wanting to rebel. They haven't wanted to follow God. And when Satan gives them that opportunity and, and to, to rebel against God at the end of the thousand years, they will rebel. They will be then all destroyed and will enter the white throne judgment. And on the white throne judgment, everybody who enters into the white throne judgment is guilty. All those who don't enter the white throne judgment have been, been redeemed and, and blessed. And the good news for us is because we come back in our glorified bodies, we will not sin during that thousand years. We will help rule during that thousand years. So we will live through the whole thousand years. We will be helping to rule and we will be in a sinless, perfect body. So it'll be good for us. And then we'll have the, the whole generation and then they will stand before the white throne judgment and be sent into everlasting lake of fire for those who've rejected Christ for that thousand years. And there will be children born and, and everything else. The world will be repopulated in the thousand year reign of Christ. So I don't know how many people will be born in a thousand years of, with no death and, and how quickly they'll start having kids or any of that stuff, but you can picture there'll be a lot of people because they're not just starting at two people like Adam and Eve, but they're starting out with Thousands, maybe, and maybe even close to a million. I don't know. But uh, we do know that Revelation, just when the one, you know, we know that at least 66% of the population of the world will be dead by the end of the tribulation period, just from the numbers that God gives us of those being destroyed. So we've got four and a half trillion people, so you, we will be losing many trillions of people through the tribulation period, rejecting God. And then it says that everything will be finished in verse 8. And I heard, but I understood not. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? This is Daniel. He's seen all these visions. He's understood that all, this, all of this stuff is coming. And he kind of calls out in confusion, okay, when is this going to happen? And again, remember, I've told you, this is, this is actually an outcry from his confusion. Okay, God, you, we're going back to Israel, and then you can say we're going to be scattered again. How long? When? He's trying to understand. And you could picture this. It would be our call too. God, you, we're, we're headed back home, and now you're telling, telling me we're going to be scattered. You know, what kind of time frame are we looking at, God? You know, because obviously he has seen things he probably doesn't understand. He's seen the end days in some form of vision. And can you imagine seeing? I mean, we've talked about this with John. You know, Daniel's another 600 years, you know, five, 600 years before John is. And all of a sudden, he's seeing all a vision of all the stuff that we take for granted in our day. You know, skyscrapers, planes, cars, things traveling faster than he can even imagine ever traveling. Uh, bombs with explosive power that he can't even imagine, you know. People dying with weapons being thrown from a long, long distance away. We would, be, we would be shocked at what we see, would see too. So here he's seen all this and stuff, and he, he realizes there's some distance in it, okay? Because he's seeing things he can't even begin to fathom. And so it's like, okay, God, how long? <laughs> you know, give me an idea, God. How, how long will this be? Because remember, he 
way back in chapter eight, he, uh, eight it was, he saw the, or nine, he, he saw the 70 weeks of Daniel. So he knows, we, he had already seen 500 years of time. And that just took him to Jesus. Okay? He saw that 500 years of time and saw Jesus and, and all that was going to happen there. And then he's seeing things that he just can't even comprehend. So he knows he's talking about a long time. And I think, he's, I think he honestly wanted to know, okay, God, how long is this going to be before all of this stuff comes to, comes to, comes to fruition? When will the people be punished? When, you know, when is all this going to happen? And that would be our question if we were standing there and God was saying to us, let me show you the future. And we see some good. Then we see a whole lot of bad. And especially if we see it in something we can't even comprehend, and we'd be going, God, how, how long, you know, how long do we, is this in my lifetime? Is it in, you know, my grandkids, my great-grandkids? He doesn't understand, and he's saying, how long will it be for all these events to occur? And there's a sadness, but probably a great sadness in his, in his, his question. Where, God, I was, just, I was thinking about this nice happy time when we were going back home, and now you're showing me this miserable time of us being scattered again. And the answer was, and he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed and sealed till the time of the end. So he was told to seal up the document. And we remember when we've talked about it, sealing up with the document meant you closed it up, you put wax on it, you put your stamp in it. And basically it was the equivalent to us sticking something in an envelope and sealing the envelope. And if you really wanted the security, you write, you know, how you can write over the edge of the envelope so that nobody, it makes it very hard for somebody to, to steam it open and, and match it up just perfectly. And this is what the, the signet ring was, was meant to do. And God says, seal it up. Daniel, it's not your concern is what he's telling him. Daniel, don't worry. And basically he's telling him it's not in your lifetime. Probably also comfort to him that it's not in any any anybody you know's lifetime, just seal it up. It's not for you guys to worry about. And, huh? I think it would be. It was very hard for Daniel. I'm sure, Dan, I'm sure for John it was hard to, to, to experience with the book of Revelation. We got Daniel seeing all of this. He says, verse 10, Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And this is a view, I believe, of us as Christians. Many shall be purified, made white. How are we made white? Through the sacrifice of Jesus. And for us as Christians, Gentiles, this has been that time when God deals with us. He has purified us. He has cleansed us. How does he cleanse us? Through his blood and the crucifixion of our flesh and the re making us a new creation, and we stand before him purified and, and perfect. And that is, I love that about God. <laughs> there, when you look at all the different religions out there, and I'm talking about all the religions out there, they all have the same basic premise. You either, on the one side, keep coming back until you do it right, you know, being reincarnated and having many chances until you finally get it right, and you go up and down depending on how well you do in your lifetime, and eventually you're supposed to, you're supposed to keep moving upward. All right? And I don't see that happening in anybody that, I, that I've ever looked at. They all seem to be doing worse, so I don't know what they come back at, you know, and I don't know how a, how a cat or a worm or a bug does, does anything good to, to be able to come upward in the next life or so. You know, so that's the one extreme. You just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until you get it right. But you don't remember what you did in your past life, so you don't know what you've done wrong or right in the past, so you can't use that as a basis. Or you go there to... There isn't reincarnation. Huh? No, there isn't. Oh, the I'm saying... No, I'm just saying the, the extremes of the fault of the religions. Or you go to the other extreme that says, do more good than bad and you're going to be okay. And that goes with everything from the, the Mormons to the Jehovah's Witnesses to the Muslims and, and almost every other religion out there, including some that call themselves Christian and aren't Christian because they're saying do more good than bad, okay, because they're not agreeing with the gospel. 
And that's a really sad way to live because you never know if you've done enough good. You don't know if it's one, one good thing for one bad thing or for every one thing do you have to do two or three good things to make up. You know, uh, are there some bad things that are so bad that it you know, takes 20 things to do good? You know, this is the problem with all of those do more good than bad because they don't define how you balance anything out. So you've got these false teachings. Keep doing it over and over and over till you get it right or just do more good than bad and you're going to be okay. This is why Christianity is so different because number one, it's not religion. It's a relationship with the Lord of the, of the, of the universe, the creator of the universe with Jesus Christ himself. And he says, I don't care how much good you do because you've done one bad thing, you're guilty. And that's what God says. So when you're ever talking to somebody and they say, well, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven, you can say, I can tell you right now, you're not. The way, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans uh, 3.23 and then Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So when you meet people and say, well, I hope I've done enough good, and you can answer them very clearly and very definitively, no, you have not. And give them the scriptures. <laughs> and go the only way to heaven is God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But wouldn't that confuse a couple of people because how you just said that? To me, even if you sin, you would go to heaven because if you're a Christian... Once you've accepted yeah, Jesus... So I'm saying, the way you said it was in a way scary for them. Well, if somebody's believing they have to do more good than bad, they're not... I don't believe they're... They're either untrained as a Christian and don't know what, know what to believe, and I want to scare that person into knowing that it's Jesus. And I am of the, of the opinion, I have no problem scaring people into heaven. Okay? Scaring, scaring the hell out of them is not a problem for me because I don't want to see them go to hell. And if it takes scaring them to do so, then I'm willing to scare them. Now, I won't do this with children. You know, I will let them know they are sinners and that the wages of sin is death and, and a separation from God because they need to know. They can't get saved. You can't get saved without knowing that you're a sinner. But if you're saved, I mean... Once you're saved, once you're, saved yeah, how, you're I, going to heaven. I'd say it's easier, not like how you do it. Like, if you haven't been saved and accepted and, for, and, 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 and asked for forgiveness of your sins, if you didn't, didn't do that, you may believe in God, but if you haven't done that, you're not saved. Right. That's how I, I right. do it an easier way for me, okay? And that, and that is good. Like I said, the ones that I'm talking to are those are going to tell me, I hope, I'm, I hope I'm good enough to be in heaven. I'm going to be very hard on that because they need to get that mentality broken. Uh, I've shared with you, our kids keep telling me the same thing. We keep telling them how to get saved, and when you ask them how you get saved, they keep telling me you've got to be good. You've got to be good. You've got to be good. And we've got to get them stopped thinking that way and realize that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And, but it, right. And it is very hard for even many Christians to understand, you know, people who claim that they're Christians to understand that. Because there, unfortunately there are hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of churches out there that don't preach the gospel message. They give you this checklist, you know, do these things and you're going to be okay. You're going to do more good than bad and, and you'll be okay with God. And they're sending people to hell with, because they're not following Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So like when I say things, I think like, I said, you believe in God? And they say, yeah, have you been saved? If they say no, I said, have you, been, have you asked for your forgiveness of sins? And they say no, then you're not saved. you got to ask. And that's fine. Whatever way works for you, because when somebody tells me they believe in God, I'll give them uh, James. You know, you believe in God, you do well. The 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 devils believe in God, you know, and they're not going to heaven, (laughs) Uh, but they believe in God. That one's kind of a dangerous one because you'd have to define who God is before you ask them that question. Because the Mormons are going to tell you they're a child of God the more, uh, because they believe that they are. You know, uh, most Muslims will tell you that they are a child of God. Yeah. So child of God is a very interesting question because you have to define who God is in this day and age. Back 
in the 17, 1800s, early 1900s, you could, at, you could get away with that in America because when you said God, they all thought of the Judeo-Christian God. Well, not everyone, but most everyone believed in the Judeo-Christian God and understood that that's who you were talking about. Uh, but if you're talking to another Christian, I say that I'm a child of God. I say that to a lot of people. Yeah. But again, it's just a kind of an interesting, you need to make sure that they understand what God you're oh, talking yeah, about. Yeah. Oh, no, there's only one God in this world. Right. But That's not everybody thinks in the same terms as we as Christians think. Because no, if you're talking to a Hindu, they might even ask you, which God are you a child of? Since how they've got thousands of gods in, in, in Hinduism. No, I haven't really never talked to any of that different yeah. nationality. Yeah. But then he goes, the wicked shall do wickedly. And it's kind of amazing, you know, we look around and the people who aren't saved aren't Christians and just want to live a wicked lifestyle. And when I find people who claim to be Christians and they want to act wickedly, I'm going to ask them, you know, are you really sure you know God? Because if you can act wickedly without conviction, you've got a problem. Because it is important. And I'm not going to try to be their judge, but if you can, be, if you can sin without any conviction from God, then you're really not his child to be in the first place because if you're his child he's going to convict he's going to say you're doing wrong and we want to see and it says the wicked shall do wicked and the, and the wicked shall not understand how many times have you witnessed to somebody and they just don't seem to understand they don't want to understand they don't care to understand they don't it doesn't seem like they can understand and really they can't understand unless they're listening to the spirit but the wise will understand. Uh, the righteous will understand, and they will be able to respond. And there are many people who are wise and, and not understanding because they're wise in their own eyes. They're wise in the ways of the world. And God says, and we've talked about this, wisdom is applied, uh, uh, wisdom is applied knowledge. This is how you learn the Bible and you learn how to apply it. And the more you know the Bible, the more you start to understand the Bible, and the more you start understanding and seeing that we are in a spiritual battle and a spiritual warfare. And the more we see that, the more we can live in a righteous style because we're starting to see things from God's perspective. And this is why we start out as babies in Christ and in God, and we learn, and we learn, and we learn. And we start getting our life changed, and the more we learn, the more we start seeing God in action. And it's a very amazing at times when we look around and say, God, you are very much in action around me. And you realize you're starting to understand and see from a spiritual perspective. And for the most part, when we first start out as Christians, we walk by sight. What can I see? And if it doesn't look the way I expect it to do, by my worldly thinking, <laughs> I don't accept it. And the more I get to know God and I start walking by faith and I start understanding, and I walk by faith and I, make, and I make those decisions based on faith, and I start seeing God, I'm going, oh, this, this whole world looks different. Everything that happens, we were talking about it early, when we're tested and tried, when we're walking in the eyes of the world and the flesh, we look at it and say, wow, this is nothing but bad. And then we get spiritual and we start understanding as, as we grow and we go, oh, this is just a test from God to see what do I know? What do I believe? Do I really believe what I believe? And remember when, when God went to Abraham and he said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. Now, that would have been a hard test. Number one, I would never have done it because I, knew that God, I know that God doesn't take human sacrifice, so I know I would have failed that test right off the bat. Because I wouldn't even, God, this can't be God. You, you know, you're, you're disagreeing with, your, with what you told us to do, not that sacrifice. But Abraham went out and he was really ready, even though he knew that Isaac was the promise. Okay, he had Isaac when he was an old man and he's being told, go sacrifice Isaac. And, Isaac, and he'd already been told that Isaac was the promise. Isaac was where the seed was going to go through. Why didn't Abraham think the way you just saw? I don't know. I don't know on that. We have the, we have the Bible to look at. We have the Bible to look at. Uh, I've always wondered, I've wondered that myself. Why didn't Abraham think that same way? You know, why would he, but you know, this is God's test between him and Abraham. He knew God's voice. And this is, we've talked about this. You know, if you know God's voice, you're willing, you're willing to step out and do things that sound totally insane and, and really dumb. You know, why, God, why would you want me to do this? But I know I heard you, so I'm going to go ahead and step out. But it really doesn't make any sense to do this. 
and then we watch what God does with it. Well, as as it says in Hebrews, Abraham knew that if he killed Isaac, God would resurrect him because Isaac was the promise. So he knew that he was coming back, and that's what he told the men at the when he left him at the bottom of Moriah or Calvary, which is the same same place. He said, "Stay here. The lad and I." will return. Okay, go, if you don't believe it, go back into chapter 14 or 15 in Genesis and read it. But he told them, the lad and I will return. Even though he knew he was going up the hill to sacrifice Isaac, he was absolutely sure that they were coming back. Why? Because Isaac was the promised child. And God had told him that he, this is the way. And so he went up in obedience. And what did God say in response? Now I know that, that, you, that you are obedient to me. Now I know your heart. Did God really not know his heart? <laughs> no, he knew. He knew that Abraham, but now Abraham knew that God was more important to him than his most precious possession, which was his son. Many times God will ask us the same thing. Are we willing to give up whatever is most precious to us? You know, are we willing to take whatever we have that is most precious to us to give it up for God? Because he wants to know, is God, is God number one or is something else in our life number one? For many people, something else is really number one in their life. We think about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved. And Jesus didn't say, believe on me. He told him, keep the commandments. And he named off just a handful of commandments. And, and the young man, if you remember, said, I've done all of that since my youth. And Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. And it said, the young man went away sad because he was wealthy. And what was God really saying to him? Now, in his case, he probably did want him to go sell everything and follow him. But in reality, he was saying, you have an idol before me. You've told me you've kept my promises and my commandments, but you have an idol. And oftentimes, God's going to come to us and say, whatever our idol is, he'll come to us and say, are you ready to give this up? And that is part of what was going through me. When I, when I worked for six and a half years for giving something up, it was really an idol in my life, a small idol in my life. And God's saying, you've got to give it up. You've got to give it up. And I tried doing everything I could to not have to give it up and finally gave it up. For the rich young ruler, it was his attitude toward his money was higher than God. But God keeps doing this to us all the time. What is your idol? What keeps you from truly serving God? And almost all of us have something in there that is a rival for God. It might not be above him, but there's always something in our life that rivals God for our attention. And this, it could be work. It very well, it could be work. For many people, it is work. Uh, it could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It can be work. It could be relationships. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can rival God for attention. And God will always work at getting those out of our life and put us in places saying, are you ready to give this up? And if there's anything in your life that you're not ready to give up when God says, are you ready to give this up? You've got an idol. Some people, it's television. I know some people that just waste all their life in front of a television. Go to vacations. It can be entertainment. It can be vacations. There's all kinds of things that can be that idol. Yeah, there's millions of things in, that can become that. And God is going to come in and into our life and say, it's time to give this up. And we have a choice at that time of giving it up or realizing that it is an idol in our life. And here he says that the wise understand. We start, the wise understand what's going on around us. When we talk about the end times and we look at all the things that are coming back together, Israel is back in their land. We're seeing the formation of a one-world government is already underway, okay? The whole process is underway in a very large way. You know, the formation of one-world currency, and every time we turn around, we're hearing about the idea of one-world currency if you're watching the financial records. Everything that Revelation says is coming is right around the corner. We're seeing the possibility of a total economic 
collapse. And if we go into an economic collapse, it will cover the whole globe and chaos will happen and the Antichrist will rise out of all of that. We're seeing all of these things right on the, on the corner. We see evil being called good. You know, right here in our own country, homosexual marriage being declared as a good thing. Uh, you know, and all these other things that are people calling marriage bad. You know, and I've heard lots of people calling marriage bad. You know, so what God calls good, the world is calling evil. What God calls evil, the world is calling good. Predicted, told to us. People are starting to do what's right in their own eyes, just as they did in the days of Noah. And it's only getting worse. Look at the riots that happen. We want to have these lives matter riot, uh, things, and it turns into a riot and people die. But all of this stuff that's going on in our world right now has been predicted and tells us that we're in the end times. Now, how close? Are, are we evil enough yet to say that, you know, that we're at the days of Noah? I don't know. I don't know what the, how evil the days of Noah were. But, you know, you look around and we see people who have no respect for life. You know, they're, they're going on shooting sprees and then killing themselves because they don't mean anything anyway. They're just an animal and they're, they're killing a whole bunch of animals and, and they shoot themselves because there's no life after this. And, you know, we see all of this going on and we see no respect for life, no respect for property, all of this stuff going on. And we're going, God, how much worse can it get before you return? How much worse will it get? But you know what? Once God takes his church out of here, and the light and the salt disappears, things will get really bad. We think it's bad now, and that's with the church holding it back. Because what ends up, every time they want to do something that's really, really bad, the church stands up pretty much and says, no, you can't do that. We don't always win and rarely win, but we're there saying, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. When the church is pulled out, there won't be that restraining power out there. And then the last, two, last couple verses... And from that time the day, uh, that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away to, and the abomination that makes desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now this is kind of an interesting number because it's three years and one month. <laughs> and we don't know where this fits in. And I'm going to tell you right now, that I, I'll give you some of the speculations that they, they have, but it's kind of a bizarre number because in Revelation it takes about three and a half years and three and a half years. And the way they do it in Revelation is it's in days and it's in a time, a time, and, and a time, times, and, and a half time. And it actually has one place where it says three and a half years. <laughs> so it's in both places and it never adds a month. What's worse is you get to verse 12 and it says, Blessed is he that waits to the coming of the 1,335 days, which is three and a half years and 75 days. <laughs> Having said all of this, there's speculation. Some people really insist that this goes to Antiochus, which doesn't really fit into because he was there longer than the three and a half years. And there's no historical documents that make these numbers fit. Others, and I don't like this one because it's inspired scripture. Others say these last verses were just added over the years by different people that said, uh, these things haven't happened, so let's add time to them. I don't buy that either. Okay, That's the liberal thing or things where they don't believe the yeah, Bible. Right, you know, things weren't added. One person, and I kind of tend to believe this, says that it starts out with the first three and a half plus one month, and you figure that when something starts, it takes time to be implemented. And so I can see this. Jesus comes down, and it takes a little time to get the government set up. Because uh, we, we, if you even you look at American history, we signed the Constitution, and then it was almost a year before everything finally got into place and the government actually started. And so I have a feeling this is probably the idea. Three and a half years, Jesus comes back and, in, and, it, and it takes time because there's a physical world that he's dealing with, not a spiritual world, to set up the, the throne, assign people to rule the various parts of the, of the world because you've got the entire world to reign. And then... He goes into 35, uh, three and a half years plus 75 days, so another month and five days after that, uh, to, or a month and a half after that to get the blessings of the, the full running of the kingdom. And I have no problem with that. You know, we're on a physical world. Could God instantly make these things happen? Yes, but I think at the same time, it's a physical world that takes time because you're going to set up offices, you're going to set up 
bureaucracy of government. And even in Jesus' day in rule, there's going to be some bureaucracy because he's going to have hundreds of thousands of people to run and you can't have everybody you know, stand right before him for all, for all the courts and all the cases that need to be decided and any kind of justice or any kind of protection. And this is when we find, if you remember back in Exodus, when Moses was making everybody stand out of three and a half million people, anytime they needed a decision, they had to come to him and wait around all day long and hope their case got heard. And that's when uh, Moses' father-in-law said, hey, pick some people, you know, you know, pick some leaders to be rulers over a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, you know, and then any really big case can come to you. <laughs> and so I believe that this is probably a true statement that they're saying is that it takes time for these things to, to happen. Jesus doesn't just show up and, you know, all of a sudden there's a palace there because number one, there is no palace right now in in Jerusalem. He's going to rule from Jerusalem, so there's going to be some time. Could he instantly make it because he's God? Yes, but I think it's he's coming back in the flesh. He's going to be a fleshly activity as he takes over some form, place of government, sets up a, a throne and leaders and everything, and then puts them around the world. So I tend to believe that that is the right answer. I'm not going to be strong on that answer because I just, there, is no, there, there is no real strong, this is what's got to happen. For this to, to happen. So he comes back and it takes some time, I think, to get these things started. And I and I that made a lot of sense to me. Out of all the weird stuff I read about this period, and if you really want to read the weird stuff, go online and type in type in this cha- chapter and you'll and go read the really weird commentary on it. And I think the the best out of what I read is the idea that it took a little time to establish the the seed of power and all of that. And then it says, but go your way till the, till, till the end be, for you shall rest and stand in your lot at the end of the days. He's going to die and God's going to bring him back into the resurrection and Daniel will be one of those ones that rule at the end with us because he knew God and God cared for him. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to come before you. We thank you for your word and, and for the things that are coming that you've given us warning Lord, keep us safe, keep our hearts decided on you and keep us following you and and as we get into time that is worse and worse and that you will eventually take us out and bring us home for the marriage supper of the Lamb while while the world goes through its trials. And we just thank you in the Son's name. Amen.